I think they're making the wrong mistakes. The first example is pricing. Most people charge way too little. But if you actually want to make a living at this and provide value, you got to charge more money. How are you going to make a living if you're charging $4 a month? Like that's really, really hard. So like charge way more. People tend to like that stuff more. If they pay money for it, they usually appreciate it. In today's episode, I talked to Sam Parr from The Hustle. Now, Sam and I have been friends for a long time, and he's got some pretty wild news in that uh, HubSpot just acquired the hustle. There's a lot of crazy things that went on with that, but um, we dive into the story there, how long due diligence took, everything else. It's a long-ranging, free-form conversation, um, but we get into other things like uh, my new local newsletter that I'm starting. He has some growth ideas and, and tactics that he shares there. Um, we get into what he thinks people are doing wrong when they're launching Substacks, which is pretty wild since... Uh, he has crazy revenue. I think, um, you know, they're over a million dollars a month in sponsored revenue and getting pretty close to that in paid memberships revenue for the hustle. And we get into growing the newsletter to almost 2 million subscribers. There's so much good stuff. I'll warn you, it's a very rambling conversation, but we have a great time. So I hope you enjoy it. Sam, thanks for joining me. What's up, man? So you and I have been friends for a long time. We've hung out in a lot of different circles. You're wildly popular on the internet today. Not today, over the last couple of months, couple of weeks. Not as popular popular as you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. But you just sold the hustle. And we, we were talking right before uh, we hit record. And you were like, dude, just hit record so that we can have the whole conversation for everybody. Um, and the first question I was asking is, how long did it take from when, uh, when HubSpot reached out to the deal actually closing? About 90 days. Well, so had you ever sold the biz- business before? I have not. I can't say what business I acquired, but this week I acquired a company. Uh, it just closed. Ooh, was it a big deal? Uh, it was a medium deal. Okay, that's great. Well, we um, if you bucket deals into small, medium, and large, it was a medium deal. <laughs> so. Well, we uh, we um, like I didn't know. I mean, I had been part of a company selling before as like a, a shareholder and like an investor and an advisor, a very, very close advisor. But I still didn't know. I didn't know like what closing meant. I didn't know what signing meant. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. And so I didn't, I didn't know what an LOI was. I didn't know. I mean, I had heard the words, but I didn't really know like what that implied. And they reached out to me around September or October. They cold emailed me. And we had been recruited or, um, you know, buyers have talked to us for yeah. a long time. And like the first couple of times I took them really seriously. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to dress up nice and fly out to their office and I'm going to show them all this cool stuff. And then after a while, I was like, um, I just didn't take it seriously. And I just said, I would send them like a, I would like write up like a one pager and I would like tell them all the reasons basically why they shouldn't buy us. Where I mean, I was like, look, we're really good at this. We are horrible at this. Um, the reason why you should buy us is this. The reason why you should not buy us is this. If you are uh, the 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 expectations for pricing is around this. If you want to talk, call me. And like it was a pretty straightforward thing, and uh, they like that. And nice. most people don't. Most people don't like that. Um, and so they emailed me, and then we we the deal was announced. Uh, la, 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 like the last day of January. And they emailed me in October. So I feel like that, that's pretty quick. It d- certainly doesn't feel quick. You mentioned on on your podcast that due diligence was, I think hell was the, <laughs> the phrase. 
It is so bad. It's so bad for a bunch of reasons. But first of all, I sold to a public company. Yeah. And I've never sold a company for $300 million, but I have a feeling selling for $300 or $500 would actually have been the same amount of work as for what we sold, which was less than $300 million. Right. Um, it's a ton of work. And the difference between my small company was that I didn't have a team of like, I don't, ha- I had like one woman named Edie who works on accounting and finance. And then I had outsourced, you know, like an outside law firm. I had an outside tax firm. And then I had me. And I had to do a lot of this in private. You can't really tell employees. Um, and it was very, very hard. They basically, I had an Excel spreadsheet that had like eight tabs. One was like real estate. So you like your office leases and things like that. Another one was like IT. So like your computer setups and all that. And then another one was like, like rev, uh, P&L, like FP, uh, what's it called? Financial planning and forecasting and, 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 and your profit and loss forever. And, yep. and then another one was like the daily email. Another one was trends. And then there was like three more. And each of those tabs literally had 150 questions on it. Like, uh, po- like so it was like post revenue every single year since starting. Post like aging account receivables every year for the last five years. And I'm like, I don't even know what aging accounts receivable means. Um, and it felt like that for like everything. And I'm I'm not I'm not bullshitting you. I probably gave them, I probably gave them 700 things, uh, wow. maybe 500. It was just really hard. I mean, you've been through it. But it's just, and the thing is, is that I think founders and CEOs are a little bit different. Like, I didn't talk to the founder of HubSpot too much during the deal, but I did sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I ha- and he was like, he would make jokes, but I have a feeling they weren't entire joke. They were. He was kind of being serious, kind of not. But he, you know, he the folks were doing a lot of the work, and he was like, "Have we closed yet?" I'm like, "No, man, we're not going to close for another three weeks." He's like, "Man, they should hurry it up." Like. He would make he would like tease like he's ready to do it, but like you know the the people doing the work they 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 need to button everything up really tightly and and maybe you and me if I bought a company and you just did buy a company you'd probably probably be a lot more lax because you're like ah we'll worry about the details later you know what I mean well that's how I was we got to so on our acquisition we started the conversation in September and then by like late November we. It was actually a thing, like seriously talking. And then just before Christmas, we got an LOI signed. And I thought like, great. Now it's just like verify that everything is correct and accurate. You know, we'll, we'll take like two or three weeks to do that. Um, and then our attorneys were like, no, no, that's not how this works. And I mean, we it still took us only, it was like 50 days. To close. That's crazy. That's still so long, right? Like, I was like, I thought we should do it in 30. Yeah. When someone talks about like, they said like, it's good. All right. They're like, all right, uh, we have um, this LOI and then we're going to close before 90 days. And I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to want to sell in 90 days. I don't even know if I'm going (laughs) to like, you know what I mean? 90 days. That's a whole, is that a quarter? Yep. That's a quarter of a year. Like, I don't even know what mood I'm going to be in or like, let alone, (laughs) I don't even know if I'm going to do this in 90 days. How am I going to sign up? You know what I mean? So it is pretty crazy. So I'm curious, like on the announcement side of things, one thing that I saw, I saw two conflicting things, right? Um, Axios reporting a purchase price of 27 million or whatever. And you saying like, that's one, I'm not ever saying what the purchase price is. And two, that's not it. Um, So I'm curious, how, how did that price get out and your take on it? I don't know how it got out. I didn't talk to anyone. 
I've never talked. I've never talked to anyone about the price. The only one I've ever talked to is probably my wife. Yeah. Um, how it got out, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to confirm or deny it, but I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, Brian, I, I told HubSpot, I'm like, I don't want to reveal the price. I told them that. And Brian, the CEO, got wind of it. And he goes, why? Uh, why'd you? He goes, because he Brian was cool. He was like, have you ever talked to him and Darmesh? Um, I know Darmesh from years ago, like at Business of Software and all that, but I've never met Brian before. They're, they're cool. Like they're, they're, I bet they're billionaires, rich guys, but they're still like down to earth, cool folks. And he was like, hey, he's always been like, hey, just like if someone gets in your way or someone keeps you guys from uh, like doing what you want to do, please let me know. Like he's really yeah. cool and great. And he was like, hey, I noticed you didn't reveal the price. Did our people tell you not to do that? Because you can if you want. And I go, no, it was me. And he was like, well, why? And I was like, Brian, don't you think it's weird that I can Google your salary? You know, like I just saw that you sold $3 million worth of shares. Um, I saw that you did this, this, and this. It's all public. And he goes, yeah, I think that's weird. And I don't like it. And it makes me uncomfortable. And I was like, yeah, that's why I didn't want to do it. It's kind of like a weird thing. I don't think it's important. Yeah. But a lot of people like gave me a hard time because on my podcast, I'm the guy who asks all these important money questions. <laughs> but uh, I always am respectful if someone says they don't want to talk about it. And in this yeah. case, I didn't really want to talk about it. But I'll say this, that when it came to business, I read a bunch of books about like life philosophies. And I could tell you about the books or whatever. But my goal was to make enough money by about 35 that I can live an incredibly lavish life and still leave a huge sum to my children. And this deal allowed me to do that. Um, and the reason why I did that was the way that I set my business up early on, I raised a little bit of angel money. And I don't entirely regret doing that because it's hard to say if this would have happened without that. But I do regret doing that because I wish I never would... Like, I don't ever want to sell anything ever again. Hmm. You know, I want to own stuff forever. But... That would have been against like my duty if I promised someone something. Like I have to, I gotta do it. So the reason why we just decided to sell was it it, it got people a return and it allowed me to achieve a, a, a personal goal. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, on the selling a company, that's something that I think about. Like we have opportunities to sell ConvertKit, and I, you know, always have the same answer of like, nope, we're never going to sell. Um, but I have a little bit of a problem in I want to figure out how like I, I have issued equity to the team. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about like either a company buyback program um, for anyone who wants to sell or like some version of like AngelList or uh, like Carta has their Carta X, you know, or something like that where the team can sell shares without selling the whole company. And I actually based a lot of my philosophy off of your blog. So you on your on ConvertKit's values, it was like yeah, uh, independently reach a hundred million in revenue. I think. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you've also said that you were not going to give any equity. And then about a year ago, your opinion changed, and you mm -hmm. gave equity. And you're like, my opinion changed because even though we're not going to sell, it makes these people feel like they're part of this, and I want them to feel that way. So I'm I'm going to do it. Um, and so I agree with that, but I don't entirely like. The solution that you came to, I think, is still not optimal. I, I think it's the best of the worst. Um, and yeah. Because you still need them to sign off on some stuff every once in a while. Now, I don't know exactly how you set it up. But if someone's an equity holder, they even if they're a tiny equity holder, they can still have a little say. Yeah. So in this case, we have options for everyone. And so um, 
you know, they, they're holding options rather than direct equity. Um, so, you know, they have things like information rights, um, but they don't have to sign off, um, on a deal. Now I know other people who are like, uh, would never get, even give information rights, you know, cause they've had someone who's like a VP, get to a VP level and then switch. And now they're having to send out like, um, their, you know, like quarterly reports to all their shareholders. And one of their shareholders is now a VP at a competitor, you know, and that really, yeah. And it's off. weird, right? Yeah. But I'm okay. I, I totally agree with your premise though, of like, I want people to share in the success Right. Um, I want them to be bought in. If someone works really hard and provides a lot of value to the company, uh, I want them to have a cut of it. Uh, I actually, you have a profit sharing thing that I try to do at my company, but it didn't work because we didn't. I didn't set the business up the right way. Um, so, like, I've actually built, or I wanted to build a lot of my stuff off of the things that you've done. But um, the way, just the way that I structured everything early on, I it, it's pretty much very impossible, almost impossible to like reverse it to do right. some of the things that are probably more optimal. But I, um, I think that like, I wouldn't want to sell for a long time or ever, but like I got sick in July or September or something. I got Lyme disease and it wasn't yeah. quite like deathly, but it was like really bad. My face was paralyzed and I couldn't um, move my face and I was struggling to talk. And I was like, it would be nice to be wealthy enough that an emergency like this wouldn't ruin me. Right. And, and it also made me reflect that like maybe business isn't the most important thing. And so that's one of the reasons why I did the deal. But I, 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 I don't know how you feel, but I mean, you're one of like the people I look up to in business, but um, I think that most days you don't ever want to sell. There is a, a few times where you're like, fuck it. I'm out. Yep. Oh, for sure. But most days, like, I don't know how you feel on having the platform and the reach side of things, but when you get to the point that you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people paying attention to what you're doing, in the case of The Hustle, you know, millions of people, um, it just takes, I remember what it was like before that and how much work it was to get attention for something. And so a lot of what I have is not wanting to give that up of like, when I have something new come out, like you can launch it, you can you know, get traction really quickly because you have that whole platform. So that's where it's like, I would, I don't think I'd be excited about starting over, even if it was with a pool of money. Yeah. I think that's it. Like I just sold, like we have close to 2000 or 2 million subscribers. Is that, that's how big it got? I had in my head 1.5 million. So you're, you're even going, of course, numbers keep getting bigger, but yeah, I mean, we're adding a lot of people. It's not quite 2 million, but it's pretty close. And then we also had tens of thousands of paying subscribers. Right. Um, so yeah, it was big. Um, and like our open rate, like the other day we had 900,000 people open. Um, so like it's, it's pretty big. Um, yeah, that's insane. But, and to start what we started, like when I say back then, I'm referring to like literally four years ago, but it's way harder now. It is way harder now. What, what do you think is different now? There was less competition. Um, I, when I told this, I like made a list of like heroes or like people I looked up to in business and I emailed them and I, this, a lot of them were media executives or media CEOs. And I told this one guy who, if I told you his name, you would know it. I'll tell you after, but he was like, this business will never make more than $2 million a year. And I was like, why not? He's like, email. He's like, that's stupid. Who makes an email? Like you guys need to do video or, uh, 
something trendy and new. Yeah, he was like, how are you going to get traffic to your site? I'm like, you don't get it, man. Like, you're on your phone. Like, who cares if that four inches of white screen is on Safari or in the mail app? Why does it matter? And in fact, it actually matters for email because I already can do the math that this person, if they only unsubscribe every uh, at a 5% rate throughout the course of a month, I know what my churn is. I know what my LTV is. I know how to that when then what I can spend to acquire a customer. Like I've just like you can't do that on your website. And they're like, yeah, but like people don't want email. And now that's totally changed. You know, you have Substack, which is awesome. ConvertKit. You guys started. You guys started a year before us. We were 2013, but we didn't get any real traction until 2015. So we started around the same time. Like so, you guys are big now. We're big now. And then there's like the Morning Brew. There's um. Um, Substack has made it quite popular. I mean, everyone has an email now. And it wasn't like that just three or four years ago. We can get into how I feel, but I'm curious how you feel of being the person, like starting an email newsletter when everyone's like, it'll never make money. It can never be a real business, you know, or something like that. And then you're trying to convince people of that. And now like the wave has come or the wave is here and everyone's like, I'm starting a newsletter. Um, do you like just not having to convince people? <laughs> No, I, I like I don't feel hate like j- I'm not jaded, so I'm not right. like oh I'm starting an email and I'm like oh dude that was but every once in a while someone's like community and newsletter is like the new media company of 2021 and I'm like dog that was the media company of 2014 like we started <laughs> then okay like if like the media company of 2021 is something that you aren't talking about probably because it seems stupid right now and it's not right. going to seem stupid in five years but that said I do th- like. What's the what's the biggest difference in email over the past 20 years? Is it like the promo tag on Gmail or the promo inbox? Like it's pretty stagnant, right? It hasn't changed yeah. significantly. Like there's superhuman and other things like it, but it's relatively been like n- zero change or close to no change. I have a feeling that's going to remain the case over the next 10 years. Maybe like some some small changes will happen, but I still think it's a pretty safe bet to rely on email. And so if someone says they're launching it, I say, yeah, I think that's smart. I would say don't copy us. Or like if you do copy us, like, yeah, you might be successful, but like try something a little bit different that seems silly now and then it might be cooler in a couple of years. Does it annoy you since you have a paid publication called Trends that there's another free publication called Trends? Does it start Is to there? laugh you? Yeah, it's like trends trends.vc or something. Oh yeah. I, I emailed that guy and I was like, hey man, it annoys like, me. But I was like, we're, I think we're going to make this big and I don't want to disrespect you, but do you want to change your name? Uh, we, I was like, we did start first and we are bigger. Like we're going to, I yeah. think we're going to make this thing big. Uh, and he wasn't having it, but that's okay. No, it doesn't annoy me. I'm curious for more of those things. You said it's harder now than it's because of the competition and to acquire customers. So we spend money on advertising to acquire customers. What are you spending now to like to acquire some Trevor? It ranges. I mean, we have all these new sources that we never even knew about. But like on Facebook, I remember on Facebook four years ago, it was like a dollar. Now it's like three. Yeah. Three or four, maybe. Maybe four. But we use all these other sources and we can get them for way cheaper. But like we built those, like that's that, those source, all the finding new sources is that's kind of like people think if you have good content, you're going to make it. It's acquiring users is, it's like, is as important as the content. So like, what are some of those other sources that, that are working now? So we do a lot of this thing called Coreg. So let's say that... Um, and we work with like literally 100 websites. 
So let's say that you you go to a website to to apply for a tech job. Or yeah, to apply for a tech job. You apply for a job to work at Facebook. And then after you sign up for Facebook and submit your resume, it says, awesome. By the way, while you're waiting, do you want to sign up for the hustle as well? Just click here. We already have your email. Just click here and you'll get the, your first free daily email. Uh, so we hmm. do things like that all the time. Um, another thing is if you look at Product Hunt. So Product Hunt has the same thing as well. Product Hunt has your email and you'll see the hustle or trends on there listed as a product. And it'll be like, do you want a free daily email? Just click this button right here and boom, you're, you'll have it. So sources like that, we call them um, co-reg, co-registration. So someone who's already registered for Product Hunt, they just click a button and then they're automatically registered for us at the hustle. Now that stuff is not nearly as turn and like click and play or whatever as Facebook, you actually like need to build out some stuff in order to make that possible. So is that something that you're getting, you're paying per, per lead on that? Like, you know, a dollar? Yeah, but you lead? can actually do it a little bit differently. You could pay per lead or if you're, can, if you're, if you start spending a, a fair bit of money, like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, you could tell them I'm only going to pay you if this subscriber is a power user. So I'll pay you a dollar, but only if they open the email at a 75% open rate for the first 10 days. So you, you're guaranteeing success, not not long-term, but at least you know midterm and not like a bunch of bot signups or whatever else. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's quite effective. Um, I think that stuff has always, or has exi- existed for years, but it took us a long time to like learn how to do all that. Um, when we launched, like there was companies doing what we have been doing, right? There was the Daily Candy, there was Thrillist, there was... Motley Fool. And there's probably was literally hundreds more that I don't even yeah. know they exist. So I don't want to act like we invented this. But in a sense, we did kind of invent it because I didn't know how anyone did it. And there certainly weren't enough to show us the way. So I'm sure that when I say we invented, we came to probably the same conclusion that many others did. But we had to learn all this on our own. Like There was no one to teach us. And we're now probably one of the... like It's us, the Skim, and Morning Brew are probably the biggest. Right. And so like we can learn from each other, but there really wasn't that many people teaching you how to do any of this stuff. Yeah. That's interesting. What do you think about like people running these largest newsletters that are publications versus someone like a James Clear where, you know, running a million subscriber email list as an individual, like what do you, what's different on growing one versus the other of the tactics that you try? Not that different. I mean, there doesn't James Clear use you guys like, yeah, he does. Um, he, what he has like a four person operation to, or it's like a small operation, right? Yeah, I think it's just him and I think two employees. It's not that different. I mean, there is one big difference, which is like your life sucks. If you're like, I used to, you know, when we started, I was the writer, right? You know, and I was the growth marketer and I was the admin and I did the accounting, which wasn't good. And I booked the office space and I recruited people. And when you're doing that for a daily email, it sucks. It is really hard. It's hard, 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 hard. Um, and so it's, you know, in order to create an asset that's sellable, people have to be interchangeable, right? right. Because you don't want to like, if you're going to buy, like, can James Clear ever sell James Clear? Maybe, but it would be really hard. Yeah. It'd be kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. It would be weird. I mean, like James Altucher just sold it and... But he eventually had to like hire people. So it's it's gonna right. be hard. It's hard to sell something that's just based off of one person. And it's hard work. It's really hard work. Is that something like I've gotten this feeling of when you were traveling around and everything that, that you've done a 
pretty good job at least of being one step removed from the day-to-day operations of the hustle. Yeah. So before, right before we sold, I hired us, like I, I had, I sent an offer to a guy to become the CEO of the company. Okay. And, and then I got the offer and I was like, Hey man, I got this offer. I, I have to take it. So I had to rescind his, my offer to him and he was cool about it. And we're still great friends and we're going to work together somehow. But yeah, I'm, I'm the type of guy who I like to start stuff and then hand it off. But then, I mean, at that point, you're still four or five years into the hustle before you hired for that role, right? Yeah, but I should have hired from that role earlier on. But I always hired people who were like pretty good at what they did. And I was always hands off. Um, like I would be in every meeting and I would participate. But like our sales team, like I had, I sold the first $150,000 worth of advertising. And then once I hired someone, I literally had never sold again. And I completely stayed away. And I just said... Um, all right, guys, let's agree to some revenue targets. And they go, all right, cool. Uh, here's what we think we can do if you can get us to grow this much. And I go, all right, cool. See you. Go do it. And then I would go to the grow team and I would say, hey, we got to grow this amount in order to hit these targets. Um, and they would say, all right, we can do it. See you. And then if and if either of those teams um, didn't hit targets or were struggling, they would say, hey, we're uh, it's not looking good. We need your help. And I would just drop in and see like what I could do to help see if I can make an introduction to some person, see if I could come up with some creative idea, see if I could use my personal brand to like promote something, things like that. Um, and then whenever we wanted to launch something new, I would always, do, I would lock myself in a room and do it almost by myself. Like when we, so trends, trends was almost going to be like, we were on track to have like close to an eight figure subscription business. Wow. And um, the first $50,000 in pre-sales I got from Gumroad. I got on Gumroad on my own. And I would literally call the customers and ask them, hey, why'd you buy this? Um, and so I, I did all the early product stuff. And then once we showed that it might be able to work, uh, we had people at our company who were significantly more talented and skilled at running it. So that, that's, it, that's interesting of like start something. So it's like the tip of the spear. And then as soon as possible, hire someone to run it. And then just basically like understand their goals and otherwise leave them alone unless they need help. Yeah, I think that like, you, how many people work there? Fifty. Yeah, sixty. Yeah, so you guys are a, bit, are a fair bit bigger than us, but we. Um, I think that uh, most people, most humans, not just at my company, but human beings, suck at starting stuff. Right? Like it's really hard to give someone a blank piece of paper and tell them create magic, create something cool. It's really, really hard for a lot of people, but. You know, you you I, I I've been reading your work for almost ten years or eight years now. Whenever you launched Authority, yep. like w- guys like you and me, I don't know if it's something you're born with or if it's a skill that you just get a muscle you just get get used to flexing. But like, let's just focus on our strengths. And most people are not that. And, and it's not to say one's better or worse. In fact, they're both important because without either, you don't create anything meaningful. But if most people are not good at this, and if you have one person who is then it's just like go all in on that and focus on creating new stuff. And that's kind of like what we did. Um, because someone like me who would try to run something on a day-to-day basis, not only would I be bad at it, I could ruin it. Um, like a co- if a company gets ADD, it can be it can be ruined. Right. That's interesting. I'm noticing like I'm good at starting things, but I'm not great at handing them off. And so I'm like following your playbook exactly, except I'm staying involved, which is a pretty key difference in the playbook. 
And so that's the transition that I'm making right now. Where well, you're a perfectionist. I mean, I, I've known you for a while. Like you're you're a craftsman. Like from your Airbnbs to uh, like I could tell like from your background of this of this uh, Zoom call, like you're a craftsman. And I think that being a craftsman is is a blessing and a curse. It's a curse or it's a blessing in that like everything Nathan Barry makes is like pretty awesome. And I want to be, I want to see everything he does. It's a curse because it's like an exhausting, it's like an exhausting place to be in because you, you probably don't let too much slide. Yeah. So, I mean, now I'm trying the approach of like, instead of hiring people and, and training them up, I'm like hiring people who have done it all before. And so, um, we just hired like the, uh, director of design from Mozilla on Firefox to run, to be our VP of product. And we just hired a senior exec from MailChimp to be our VP of engineering and like just filling in roles in that way with people who really know what they're doing. We'll see how well it works out, but I think so far it'll be good. So someone taught me that same thing. And so when we hired people, you know, you can't afford anyone at first. So you can only afford someone who's willing to work for 40 grand a year. And that 40 grand a year person is probably pretty smart or high energy yep. or or real but but really inexperienced or some combination of all of those you know what i mean like so you can like you got to pick like you're smart but you're unskilled or you know you, you have to pick like like two right. or three and and then it's like a blessing once you get big enough you got the skill but you don't have driver right and so you got to like pick and choose like who can you can hire for $45,000 a year and then uh, once you get big enough, uh, Andrew Wilkinson, who I'm sure you know, yep. he taught. He was like, man, because I, I was like, hey, I'm thinking about hiring the CEO. And I showed him this role. And he was like, but this person has never done it before. I go, yeah, but like they built this other company that's like, it's a software company. And that's kind of cool. And like, they're really smart. And he goes, no, 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 dude. Just go find someone who's already done this before. And I was like, why? And I wanted to get like cute and creative. I'm like, oh, but think of this like, you know, he could apply this. He goes, no, just get someone who's done all this before. It's way easier. Like if you're going to get a mechanic, do you want a mechanic who's like been a good electrician before? Or do you just want someone who's a really good mechanic? Like just get a good mechanic, like someone who already knows what they're doing. And I did, I agree with you. That's the way to go. Yeah, that makes sense. But like you want to get cute, right? Like you want to get cute and like find unique ways of going about it. But maybe that's not necessary. Well, I always want to think that all the rules and best practices don't apply to me. You know, of like, I can figure out some way around it or like I'll train this person up in some way. And I like to give everyone lots of chances, um, which has yeah. resulted in some amazing people that work on the team. Um, but then it's also hard when you get to this level, especially for like manager and executive roles, where it's just like, now I'm fully in the hire people who have done it before camp. Yeah, it's just way less headache. Okay, so I'm curious... Uh, on, there's on the writing side, was that a hard thing to hand off or was writing something easier? Cause I think a lot of newsletter creators, you know, they start writing everything themselves. Um, and they have this really close attachment to it. And then that's the biggest hamster wheel, right? It was a little bit. So if anyone ever wrote anything and they put my name on it, I would say I have to approve it. You can't send that out because sometimes people would write like, like a re-engagement email. So if someone's quitting, they would write an email from my name because it would get a higher open rate just because when you have a name on it. And I got really mad. I was like, you guys, I'm, I'm so thankful you took initiative. But if this is my name, you got to tell me about it. How would you like it if I said, hey, you know, I'm just making, I'm just making this up. This isn't true. Hey, Steph, um, by the way, I just told all these people, you just said this. You cool? Uh, 
So right. I was like, so, so that was a challenge setting boundaries, but um, handing it off, it, it yes and no, because like, I, I'm not saying this is the reality, but I felt I was the best. So uh, I felt my perspective is the best. I can identify with that. Yeah. And it's, it's actually not true. Like we've actually hired people that are way better than me, but I, so I felt I was the best, but I didn't like it. It's really hard. Writing is hard. It's a hard work. Like when you're writing your book, like you want to kill yourself while you're doing it, but afterwards you're like, "Fuck yeah, this is awesome! It's finished." It's <laughs> yeah. exa- so. But imagine doing that every day. Writing is one of those things that I feel like only I could ever write in my voice or in the style that I like or something like that. And then I've worked with some really good editors, and they take something that I write and then add a whole bunch to it, and it still sounds exactly like me. And I'm like, "Oh, okay." So it's when a professional comes in, it's a different game. I can write like you. I know how you write. I like it. You and I can we can write a, somewhat similarly, um, but I think I could write like you. I've re- I've read so much of your work that. Uh, do you know what Do you know what copy work is? No, I don't. So it's when you. Um, they used to teach us in the school years ago, and then something changed in how they thought people learned, and they quit doing it. But basically, a great way to learn how to write is you take other works, and you just copy them word for word. It's kind of like when you learn how to play an instrument, you know, you don't like write your song right away. You typically play jingle bells and then you figure out how to play like some song you like. And then you like learn how to play like, you know, you copy like Green Day and then you copy Foo Fighters. And then after you're doing that for five years and you're like, write your first rock song. So that's how I learned how to write is I copy other people's work and I would copy your work. I would copy a lot of people's work. Any author that I thought like had a really sharp tone of voice. I would copy it out by hand. So I've copied some of your stuff. And so like, if you do that a little bit, you can, you can learn how to write just like them. That's fascinating because I would do that with design where I remember when I was first learning design, you know, you didn't have any clients or things like that. And so you just be looking for something to design because you didn't want to just follow the tutorial. You needed more than that. And so I'd find a website that I loved and I would just go recreate the whole thing in Photoshop. It's, 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 I think it's the most effective way to learn. Like, do you realize how, when we do your kids play any instruments or they're too young? Um, I'm just trying to get them started. I actually took up playing piano, uh, 80 days ago to try to inspire my kids to play the piano. And, uh, my son, like he had no interest in playing the piano. And then like about 45 days of me practicing every single day, he like is hanging out near the piano and then he's doing it. But, um, do you know how to play anything? uh, Yeah, I can play. Um, but he he got me back by playing Baby Shark on the piano, and I was like, oh, "That's awesome!" Man. So, like, you learned how to play the piano in eighty days. That's pretty remarkable, right? And you maybe aren't great, but at least you could play something. Yep. And it's the same with writing. So, you, I think you can take someone who's bad at writing and make them a little bit better or a lot better in a very short amount of time by doing this. That's interesting. So, basically, find five, 10 writers that you really enjoy reading, you love their style, or even maybe their style is completely different and you want it to use it to stretch your own ability. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, um, do I have anything up here that I've done copy work with? So um, I don't think I have anything. So like, um, what's the guy's name who wrote the book? Uh, Thompson. What's the, what's the guy's name? Who's like the uh, drug addict writer uh, um, who wrote like uh um, I, why can't I think of it? The guy who wrote about the Hell's Angels and going to Vegas and doing drugs. I can't. Hunter S. Thompson. Okay, yeah. 
Okay, so his writing is like kind of interesting. And I don't really want to write like him, but I want to learn what makes his writing special. So I would just write that novel out. Or um, J.D. Salinger um, wrote uh, Catcher in the Rye. Kind of a kiddie, like kind of a kid's book. Um, so very simple language, but pretty interesting storytelling. Um, so I learned how to, I, I would copy that book. And then I would learn how to... I really wanted to learn how to be a good copywriter, a good salesperson. So... I would take old advertisements, long form advertisements, and I would copy them word for word. And so I start learning like, all right, wow, this here's how you sell. Here's how you story tell. Here's how you use simple language to describe complex topics. Um, or let's say you want to learn how to write comedy. So you can just literally write out a script from a movie. Judd Apatow does this all the time. Or he said he did. He, uh, What's the guy's name? The Jewish uh, director from uh, New York who wrote, the, uh, who wrote Penny... Uh, uh, freaking um, Andy, uh, what's the guy's name? He he, he ended up dating his stepdaughter. Uh, oh, I, I don't I, I don't know. Apparently, I'm bad with names. <laughs> uh, what's the guy's name? He's a fame. Everyone's gonna be like be scrap. He's everyone's gonna be screaming this, but he's like um. Anyway, Annie Hall, the guy who did Annie Hall. What's his name? It's gonna kill me. Woody Allen. Woody Allen. There we go. Woody Allen. The guy who, uh, so Judd Apatow wanted to be like Andy, uh, like Woody Allen. And so he just got a bunch of Woody Allen scripts and he just wrote them out word for word. Or he also wanted to be good at writing sketch comedy. So we took Saturday Night Live skits and wrote them out word for word. It's a very, very, very effective way to learn how to write. Yeah. And would you retype them or are you actually writing them long form by hand? I usually keep them right here. So I have like, I don't have them here right now. I have a big old stack of notebooks and I wrote them out by hand. And I still do this. Do you think that that helps? You know, you pick out patterns and all of that versus typing. Verse, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you do. If you're <laughs> if you're putting in the time to do it. No, I think handwriting was better because you you handwrite slower than you type. You can type a lot faster than you could handwrite, so it, it's a forcing factor to slow, keep you slow. Um, you know what I mean? And so it's like maybe now that you've learned how to play simple music. I don't know if you have gotten to this level, but you'll be listening to the radio and you're like, oh, wow, there was a chord change. Or, oh, wow, he's using like the, the ACD chord structure. I'm, I don't know anything about music. I'm making this up. But you know what I mean? Like maybe you like start... Because you have figured out the texture, you start seeing that out in the wild and you're like, oh, I just unpacked it. That's how they made the song popular. They did this thing. You know what I mean? And so you could do that with good writing now if you learn how to write well. You're like, oh, you, you see how they, um, their opening line like uh, cut straight to the story as opposed to doing this, this, and this. Or they've described this, or the rhythm of their sentences has changed dramatically and they did that to make you feel X, Y, and Z. Or this person's writing at a fourth grade reading level, but they are describing like what what it's like to be floating around in space in the universe and wondering what's man's man, what's man's purpose in all of this. Like a complex topic, but they're writing using syllable words that don't have more than three syllables. And anyway, you start when you start seeing that, I think it's pretty cool. Well one example that I can think of is I would write a lot from my own experience for the most part. But then you get to a point where you're trying to pull in examples, you know, of like, here's how this creator, you know, grew their audience or built a business with these other things. And I would always share examples. Like I could only do a few examples per piece because if I wanted to talk about someone else, it took me like three paragraphs to introduce who they were, talk about them and like make my point with their story. 
And then I'd read Ryan Holiday and he would, in a single sentence, like he has his points and then he would introduce someone, use, like make a point and move on in one sentence. And it, like as a reader, it was just as engaging as what I was, or like uh, communicated just as much as what I was saying in three paragraphs. And so I remember uh, it was Obstacle is the Way was his book where I would like go back and be like, wait, what? How did you communicate that much so quickly? And that was one that I started copying his style on directly. Yeah, and it's a, you could learn that really quickly by just finding the segments that he did that and literally writing it out by hand. And if you do it like 10, 20, 30 times, it can become a learned behavior relatively easily. Um, ver- because writing can be... Like everyone... A lot, many people think they're bad at writing. And it's like a pretty... Like you don't need to think that much in order to get good at it if you use this tactic. Yeah, that's interesting. Are there other areas of like your life or business that you apply that tactic? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that like the goal is basically to remove a lot of emotion and a lot of like decision fatigue out of learning a skill set. So, like, if you want to get good at something, like, you try not to, the goal is ultimately to just copy what has worked in the past so you can actually get good at the exercise versus thinking about what exercise you should do. And I do that with writing. And then I also do it with exercise, like literally working out. So like if I want to get, if I get, if I want to run fast, I like to train to be a sprinter. I, I, I was a sprinter in college and I still like to do the training. Um, I always hire a coach and I say, make a plan for me. And so all I think about is showing up to the track and getting the work done as opposed to deciding like what I need to do. Um, I do that with weightlifting. I like, to, I, I have a personal chef, which sounds bougie, but it's not that expensive. Um, and so I like, if I want to lose weight, I'm just like, all right, I need to eat 1800 calories a day. Just do it so I can grab it and eat it. So I like to do whenever I like have a goal, I like to remove as much. Like I like to put blinders on and, that, and, and so I kind of, I, it's a little bit of a similar process as copy work. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, because I think on so many of these things, it's it's just about doing the work consistently. Like I, or I was talking about talking to my brother in law about weightlifting the other day, and just how you can kind of. It's not that you can do whatever, but you kind of just need to pick a religion and stick with it, rather than yes. like debating the pros and cons of you know every different method. Do, are you trying to get strong? Um, I I would like to. I haven't been to the gym in a very long time. Can I brag really quick? Well, I saw on Facebook. Can I brag for you, dude? That I was working to do that for a few months. I finally hit it. So I hit the eleven hundred about the eleven hundred pound club. And do you want to know something crazy? Um, yeah. I mean, I've been exercising for a long time, so um, I don't know if you have or have not. But it's definitely an unfair advantage if you've been doing it for a long time. But I followed the five by five plan. You know what that is? Yeah. It was the best. I got, I got so strong so fast. All it is is five sets with five reps of bench, squat, and deadlift. That's pretty much all it is. You could do a few other things, but that's basically it. And you do it three days a week. And it takes about 45 minutes. And it seems very stupid and repetitive. And it made me very strong. I highly recommend that. Yeah. And so for anyone who doesn't know, the 1,000-pound the club is, would be the, the milestone that most people are trying to hit of those three weights or those three lifts adding up to a thousand pounds. Yeah. The next goal, I don't think I'm going to do it because I don't think you need to have big muscles to like, like my goal is to live to 120 and just be able to be healthy. You don't need to have big muscles to do that. But I think the next goal is going to be 300, 400, 500. So it's a 300 pound bench, which I did the other day. So I don't need to improve that. A 400 pound squat, which I can do almost. And then a 500 pound deadlift, which I can't do. 
And so okay. three, so how much would that, that would be 1200 pounds. Yeah. Um, so that's like the next thing. And I think you can do that just by doing five by five. It's like an, an incredible routine that whoever made it up, it's very effective. Yeah. Mark, um, be, oh, everyone listening to this is going to be like, you guys don't know the names of a single person, but that's okay. Uh, was it a guy named Mark Texas? Is that his name? No, it's, I think starting strength is the book. And anyway, it's not important. That's what everyone has been before. Yeah. Sorry. We're like, I, I said like, you know, that director. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So can I, um, can I ask you, what yeah. do you think is going to change about email? Uh, that's a good question. Well, I love the fact that I don't have to tell people that it's a good idea to do email anymore. Like that's what's nice about what has changed because, you know, three, four or five years ago, people were like, yeah, that's great. But like, isn't email dead or something? And now everyone's like, email is the greatest thing. And, and so that's fun. Can I give you an analogy to use for that? Yeah. So when here's what I tell people. I go, email is like your pirate ship and every new subscriber is a little bit of wind in your sails. I like that. You could steal that one when you're trying to explain why email is important. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> we'll be off, you know, marauding on the seas. Um, what I think is going to change is I think that one of these email clients, whether it's a Hey or Superhuman or one of those, will um, get enough traction that they could actually change how we interact with email. It should. I think we're still quite a ways off from it. And I don't necessarily think it's going to be any of those, like, those that do it. I used to think it would be Gmail, um, but now I'm not convinced Like it's not going to be Gmail. Um, the ship has sailed on that. Like if they were going to do it, they would do it with their inbox product and, and they didn't. Um, so that's the first thing. Wait, can we talk more about that? So, like, yeah. so to anyone who doesn't entirely understand what he's talking about, basically like Gmail never has never evolves. Right. You, you can't buy. They've they've evolved a little bit. They are, what's that called? Accelerated mobile pages. So AMP AMP. You can they have AMP and email, but no one uses it. But it is pretty nifty. But no one uses it. Um, but basically, like in your email, you should be able to buy stuff, or you should be able to like you should be able to see a video, or you should be able to swipe, or I don't know what else. Well, so a bunch of that is coming. Like we're building video and email right now. And it'll um, just have fallbacks. It works on most Apple devices. Or it works on all Apple devices and a lot of other ones. And we're just building it where it has all the fallbacks so that um, on like the crappiest version of Outlook, it will just be the, like click the, the image or click the animated GIF is what it'll be and it, and it opens. But then on you know your iPhone or Apple Mail or um, even in some cases Gmail, um, it'll play the video in line. How? So when I say video in line, we've always just used GIFs. I thought it would be cool to like put in a GIF like part one and then make the user hit refresh to see part two. That can work. Um, so basically, HTML5 video is a lot more supported than people think. It's just no one's willing to do the work for all the fallbacks. Um, and And so it's not actually like I dove into researching it. Um, actually, there's a company called Tailored Mail. Um, that said they had it, and I was like, "That's nonsense." And then I a lot of people have said they have it. Yeah, and I dove in and realized, like, oh, it's actually like you can't get it perfect, but you can get it pretty close. Um, and and there's a whole bunch of work to it, but I think a lot of that will get better. 
if that exists, I think that will change. That might change storytelling because if you're like the New York Times, you don't need a website ever. And you could tell story in someone's email or like you can send live alerts about a breaking news story and like have a live video in someone's email. And I think that's like really, really, really quite revolutionary. Like I'm not even being sarcastic like or hyperbolic. Like that's legitimately a, will, it will change how someone receives information. That's fascinating. I didn't think about oh, like a live video. Because obviously, if you can do video, then you can do live video. Uh, but I didn't think about the implications of that. Well, think about it. Most people's emails are static, right? They send at the same time every day. That's not how it should be. News doesn't happen at the same time every day. So if you're following, if you have a you you bought a local publication, right? I'm building one. Yeah. Like if you are in Boise and it's like there's a shooter in Boise, like they got to tell people right away. Or if like the election results for the mayor of Boise, like it's coming down to the last minute. We're actually here now where, you know what I mean? Like that's pretty phenomenal, I think. And they should like have that in real time, not at 8 a.m. every morning. When, and they'll, you know, use email to push things out. One thing that I think is really interesting is using um, server-generated images to change the content in an email, right? That's the what I'm yeah. Yeah, so like um, countdown timers are the most common example. We're about to roll that out natively in ConvertKit. But what's actually cooler is when you're doing things like um, like shipping status or something like that. And it keeps changing in the email because that's just an image that they're generating off the server. I just wish you could do it in an accessible way. I think that's exciting. Like, all, I mean, it seems kind of nerdy when you like talk about it like this, but I'm like, no, I, like the implications actually can be pretty big. Like if it could be because what ConvertKit and other people are doing, like you're building the Legos and then maybe like someone like me who likes to put Legos together, like you're giving me these new parts and I'm hopefully going to turn it into some like amazing art that you didn't even know that you were intending to use it for. And that's cool. I mean, there's other things like, um, I don't think this is in any other platform, but for the longest time, if you sent out an email, you know, the, and you click the link and it's broken, then you hit reply and you're like, dude, you just emailed a million people with a broken link. Um, and one thing that we realized is that link hits our servers. And so we can actually let you edit the link after the email has been sent. And so I don't think any other tool has added that yet. But when you like obsess over these problems enough, then you can put it But in. you want to know something funny that that tactic of emailing the wrong link and then emailing them again to let people know that you've fixed it always gets more sales. Oh, it does. Okay, you should tell everyone about your Black Friday uh, promotion. Okay, so I've done this twice. Most people don't know I did this twice. I actually did this in 2014 when we first started when we only had about 40,000 subscribers. So back then in 14, what I did... Or 15... or No, when did we launch? No, we launched in 16. So I did in 2016. Um, I'll tell you what I did in Black Friday and I'll tell you what I did now and or back then. So back then, I we accidentally sent like... It was the day was Thursday morning. We accidentally sent the previous Wednesday's email on Thursday. And so people got like the same one over. And then we immediately sent a reply. And it was a screenshot of my Slack where it was me slacking to our writers saying, like, you really just screwed up. You know this, right? And then being <laughs> like, oh my God, I, uh, I can't believe I did that. And it's like, and she's saying, like, well, what do I do? And I'm saying, you better fix this or you're out of here. And she was being like, well, you got to give me some suggestions. I go, I don't know. Just take a screenshot of this and put it in the email. And if it gets a lot of opens, you're going to keep your job. If it doesn't, you're out of here. 
<laughs> and we just screenshotted that and put it in the email and it got the highest open rate and a lot some people didn't get the joke and they got up mad at me but I was whatever um but the other day we made like $800,000 in one day and what we did was um this this is like what I'm saying like you you convert kit creates the lego pieces and and it's fun for us to to manipulate it to create cool stuff we um made an email which is actually really hard to make an email look like a gmail email um it's like not intuitive and you got to like kind of do weird stuff but we made an email look like a gmail email and we made it look exactly like i was having a conversation with the team and i sent them an email it said all right everyone our big black friday sale it's totally ready can you guys please make sure all the links work um um, this is going to go live and it's actually like our biggest discount ever. I'm kind of a f- think that we're giving too big of a discount, but, uh, whatever, I guess we'll see what happens. Just, uh, let me know if it works and then we'll, and we'll hit send tomorrow morning. And then they reply. And, and so that email, it was sent to a million plus people or something like that. And we made it look like it was, it was an accident. You know, I accidentally sent it to our whole list as opposed to our company. Right. And we got so much traction so much there was tens of thousands of people on the website buying and i got literally 10,000 emails and we sent it from sam at the hustle my personal email i got so many subscribe people saying including my friends like nathan um or uh, andrew wilkinson like smart techie entrepreneurial friends being like they called me and they go yeah they go dude you just sent this out to your whole list. This was not meant for. This was you were not meaning to send this to me. And my reply was like, "Oh no, really?" And uh, it just crushed it. Yeah, it was like the biggest sales day ever. I think we, I think we stole that idea. By the way, I, I'll give credit. I, I think it was Chubby's who I stole it, or Brooklyn, and we stole it from someone. But it was really effective. Yeah, that's amazing. I just love the idea that someone receiving that email would think that like there's another email address of like entire list at the hustle.com or whatever that you send to that it like i love that someone thinks that's a mistake that could actually be made the people at hubspot emailed me this was during our our due diligence and they're like hey like they called me or texted me they're like i don't think this meant to go to everyone and i was like oh my god i know it was a joke (laughs) um it was a it was a huge hit it was great that's amazing um I'd love to talk just for a few minutes about monetization and and uh, any of that, since you have the split between sponsored revenue and and the paid revenue and all that. Um, maybe share some of the numbers behind trends, at least at the highest level that you can, and then um, I'm curious why why you keep those two models. So when um, we were we were probably going to do 20 million in revenue in 2021. Um, That's amazing um independently um but now things change you know we're owned by a 20 billion dollar software company and they're less interested in our revenue and more interested in the revenue we can create for them as a new uh, you know because they're hubspot only has like a hundred thousand customers and they do a billion in sales so they're like yeah we don't really care about your 20 million in revenue that's cool and all but can you help us drive like five percent more customer base because that's like a huge jump for us um and I just made all those numbers up, by the way, uh, except for the hundred thousand. That's public, but don't. Uh, now that we're owned by a public company, I got to be careful what I say. You know, I'm not saying the customer base is going to jump by five percent, or they even want it to. I'm just making that up for argument's sake. Yeah. Um. So when we started the business, the goal was to build up this massive email list and build trust, and then create profits uh, early on with advertising, 
and then use those profits to build stuff um, for the audience. And I think you actually had that wonderful blog post called like the billion dollar blog. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is that what it's called? <laughs> it is. And you were like, uh, there's a lot of companies that started as a blog and then they launched other things. So for example, ConvertKit was kind of like this off nathanberry.com. Then there was, um, um, what's the makeup company in New York? Uh, uh, uh gloss into the gloss. Turn- yep. Into the gloss turned into Glossier. Um, and there was like, you had like five or 10 examples. And that's, before I saw your blog post, that's what we wanted to do. And we were just using the advertising early on to bootstrap. And then we launched Trends and because I was researching which products we should make. And I was doing a ton of research and I would send it to my friends. And they were like, dude, this is sick. Can you actually research this other thing for me? And uh, we were like, oh, maybe this is the product. Like, is research. Uh, and then we built a Facebook group for it. And they were all talking to each other about other stuff they were researching. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Community and research. That's the product. Um, so the idea was not to be an advertising-driven company. It was just be an advertising-driven company early on and then launch trends. I mean, we didn't know it was going to be trends. We were going to launch something. Um, it, it was actually pretty hard to pull that off. But we did a pretty good job. Um, I think we would have built it to a $100 million a year business if we, if we just waited a few more years or maybe 5 or 10 more years. But like, it's a pretty proven track record if you can pull this off. And subscription revenue is awesome. It is really, really, really cool. It is awesome. Um, I used to look at ConvertKit's um, bare metrics numbers all the time to see what your monthly churn was to try to beat it. And in reality, it's like you don't even compare the two. You know, content and software, like it's two totally different things. But I would like, I would just like, oh, what's a good churn? Let's look at ConvertKit. Um, um, but anyway, um, it was awesome. Uh, it, it gave us a lot of freedom because when you have when you rely solely on advertising, you can't say certain stuff. And I didn't want us to be in that position. Um, you know, you if you say something inappropriate or you say something that not everyone agrees with, um, they can they can pull their ad. And that's cool. That's the right. Um, but it just stinks that that will hurt you if you're if you're reporting on something. And I didn't want that to be the case. So we pivoted. Um, and it was pretty successful. It was really hard, but very successful. Oh, and uh, you asked me to say numbers. Uh, Trends had, uh, has over 15,000 subscribers. How many of those were from uh, Black Friday in particular? I don't remember exactly, but that day or that like campaign drove like 800,000, probably 3,000 customers. That's amazing. Yeah, because 3,000 times 300 is nine. Yeah, we, we drove about yeah, we drove about eight hundred thousand dollars in sales that day. So whatever that divided by, I think it was two hundred was the price. Whatever that divided by two hundred is how many we got. So what's like what's the breakdown between um, sponsorship revenue and you know the trends revenue as the like percentage of the company? By the time we sold, advertising was about was over as uh, it was over. It was over a million a month in sales. Wow. Um, and trends was going to be close to eight figures this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we counted our revenue a little bit odd. Like when you guys do annual billing, how do you count? How, what, what do you call that? Just deferred revenue? Yeah. Well, we were on an accrual basis. And so we, you know, divide it by 12 and, and then, um, accrue a portion of it every month. 
so I hate that because I'm like, I have the money in the bank and I could spend this money now. Yeah. So we would call it net cash receipts because I, so anyway, like we wanted to have like cash in the bank, like 20 to 22 million in 2021. Okay. And I think advertising could have been about 14, 15. So, so the majority is still is advertising, but trends is a kick-ass business. Yeah. Cause the renewal rate's so freaking high. Yeah, like our renewal rate's really high. And I think we're we undercharge. We're we're not gonna raise the price anymore, but the reason why I'm not sure what twenty one would have been is because we had tested raising like tripling the price and conversion rates were the same. Yeah, what do you think about like everyone going with paid newsletters now? You know, so a solo creator, let's say you're at twenty five thousand subscribers or twenty thousand subscribers. I think they're making the wrong mistakes. I think there's the Substack is cool, but I think it's helping people make bad mistakes. Um I'll give a few Explain. examples. The first, the first example is pricing. Most people charge way too little. Um, if you're creating a B2C thing, then I understand why you would want to charge like $5 a month. But if you actually want to make a living at this and provide value, you got to charge more money. Like um, Most cre- creators typically are bad at this. They think that certain information should be free, but it's like, man, how are you going to make a living if you... If you're charging four dollars a month, like that's really, really hard. So, like, charge way more. So, I think people need to charge a lot more money, um, like fifty dollars a month. Yeah, or I would say, and uh, yeah, more. Yeah, fifty bucks a month. Sure. Like, I would say, like, the difference between a a, a person buying ninety nine a year and two ninety nine a year, I bet you those rates would be the same, and you just made three x more money. Um, and then the difference between two ninety nine and four ninety nine also probably isn't like that big. So I think you should charge more. And not only is charging more good for you as a creator because you get more money and can you can put more into the business, but also people tend to like that stuff more. If they pay money for it, they usually appreciate it more. You know, it's like if you worked really hard to buy a car versus if the car was given to you, you're going to treat one of those differently than the other. So I think people tend to treat higher end stuff nicer. So I think you should charge. Now I don't think. This isn't like blanket advice for everyone, but I think a lot of people could use that. The second thing is I would actually do annual billing only, not monthly billing. Um, so if you could pull off doing annual only, put it as like, you know, 25 bucks a month, but charge it as two ninety nine a year. Um, because once you... Yeah, I just think that's the better move. And you actually would probably have a far more educated opinion on this, but from content, that's what I've seen. Well, the... Um... I mean, I agree with that because we've seen content on membership sites or sorry, churn on membership sites or content businesses being quite a bit higher than software in general, especially when people are implementing it poorly. And so then what happens is, you know, you're just playing this churn game. And especially when you have high churn on a $9, $15 a month product, it's really rough. Possible. And so I, exactly what you're saying of going for a year up front. Now it's interesting. A lot of people go like, buy a year for a discount and you're saying like just don't even offer a monthly price yeah well if you're gonna awfully uh, offer a monthly price make it like crazy expensive so it puts an acre so it makes the annual a no-brainer so like 50 bucks a month and or 250 dollars a year so it's like double or yeah only pretty much the whole goal though is to get annual right and we have never done monthly and the reason why is I went and talked to the information. I talked to The Athletic. I talked to The New York Times. I talked to 
The Motley Fool. I talked to like all these companies and and pretty much across the board, they were like, we only drive people to annual. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not even going to have a monthly. We're just going to get rid of it entirely. Yeah. Um, like why, why even do that then? Let's just cut, cut that. Um, the third thing I would say is have a long form sales page as your homepage. A lot of people will think that the, they're the New York Times and that they can just make their homepage or the page that they drive all the traffic to make it like a um, like give a lot, give away a lot of stuff for free and just hope someone will convert. Um, that that will work if you're the New York Times and everyone knows to trust you and to get to know you and they know exactly what what they're getting themselves into. I think if you're like not them, then you should probably have a pretty hardcore um, like sales page. And I don't my my opinion is not to do freemium. Do you have to pay money to get it? Um, you could do like a one, like we do a one dollar trial, which is interesting. Um, but uh, I would say like make your homepage a sales page. Like if you go to convert or uh, sub sub Substack pages, it's just like a one liner that like doesn't sell the product. Right. So I think you need like a sales page, kind of like your book, Authority. Like you had a sales page. Well, what I was trying to do with authority was take the best that I could learn from direct response copywriting and then bring in design from the startup world and try to merge those two things. Cause like the design startup world, they would be like, no, here's a buy button. You don't need any convincing. And the direct response world would be like, it doesn't have to look pretty, but it's going to be 10 pages long convincing you everything about it. And I was like, can we just, <laughs> can we just combine these two things? That's exactly what I do. I totally agree with that premise. I 100% agree with you. And that's exactly what I do. And um, I completely agree with that. Um, and then maybe the last thing is what I would make it, what I would make tell you to do if you want to grow a paid newsletter is um, on the sales page, which should be your homepage. And, um, I would make it so you have to enter your email to see the next to checkout page because what's the average conversion rate? Like 3%. But yeah. you can collect probably 10 or 12% of those people's email. And pretty much 100% of the people who gave you their email that were already going to buy are going to continue to buy. But now you've just created a huge lead list. So you can email them all the time and provide a ton of free value and like sell them on your ideas and your product and why it's good. And then you can increase your sales significantly. Yeah, that's good. And then, I mean, that's where you have automated emails right there going from the free into paid that's super straightforward. Yeah, so those are some tips I would do to to be paid. Also, if you want to be a paid, like have a paid newsletter, go out and find the scammiest stuff you can find, and you they'll probably be doing a whole lot better than like the people on Substack. And don't be scammy. Don't be. I mean, be ethical. Provide value, but try to understand why these scammy people are winning. So, for example, there's this company called Agora. You know what Agora is? I do. Yeah. So not everything they do is scammy, but they because they but they own like thirty companies. But some of the stuff is, and they've been sold. They've been sued for selling like a diabetes cure, which is like a book, which like is like horrible. That's yeah. You should go to prison for doing that, right? Um, and they've been sued for it. But they make about a billion dollars a year selling newsletters. And so you have to ask yourself, like, okay, even if you don't agree with the ethics, which I don't, let's let's figure out what they're doing that's really good, and make apply that to a good product with a high integrity team. And so that's what I think you should do. I don't think you should copy people on Substack because only a few of them are doing that pretty well. I think you should copy companies like like Motley Fool. No one talks about Motley Fool right now. I bet you they make half a billion dollars in sales a year. Or um, 
Agora or James Altucher. Everyone, James is my buddy. Everyone makes fun of James because he had these scammy looking um, ads. I bet that makes like 60 million bucks a year. And I'm not, again, saying like, go against your ethics or anything like that. But just ask yourself, why do some of these people succeed significantly better than these other people who we talk about all the time? And try to combine uh, interesting tactics. Yeah, I love it. Well, Sam, I should probably let you get back to uh, an evening and, you know, all of that. You've had a busy couple of weeks, a couple of months, really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm happy it's over, though. I'm happy I got to hang out with you. Are you, um, what are you going to do with your Boise publication? Yeah, um, I'm going to, well, I kind of want to grow a newsletter again. Um, and so, Oh, I just said it earlier in this call. I didn't want to start something from scratch. And here I am starting something from scratch. So how much did you invest to start it? Um, I'm setting aside 25 grand. Um, that's it. Yeah. Should I set aside more? I don't know. I mean, if you can get it done with 25 grand, dude, yeah, that's badass. I would have thought it would have been like a quarter of a million at least. Are you getting someone full-time on staff? Um, I'm starting with someone. I hired someone on contract, um, to start. So she's working on it part-time. I have like relatively small aspirations for it initially. Um, and I want to get that, that traction. Dude, that's badass. I want to launch this. This is like the, this is like the most baller thing you, you've done. This is cool. One idea that I have, I, I have no idea if this would work. Um, and so I'm curious for your take on it. I looked at my own newsletter list, right? So for my blog, I've got, I don't know, 27,000 subscribers or something. And like four or 500 are in Boise, which is, makes sense because I've lived here, grown up here forever, all of that. But I'm curious if we went to friends who have, you know, like 50,000 subscribers or 100,000 subscribers and you like did the location search and it was like they had 800 in Boise or 300. I'm curious if like them emailing and being like, hey, my buddy Nathan is starting a, a newsletter in Boise. I noticed you in Boise. I thought you might like it. One, I have no idea what the conversion rates are. And two, I have no idea if anyone would agree to it like to actually send it out. But I was thinking about it and I'm like, that would be a really quick way to grow. I, so we wouldn't agree to it because it's a lot of work. Right. It's a lot of work to attract those 800 people. But I think many others would, and I think it would work. You want to know how I would grow it is I would write a new article every three days and I would make it like, you know, you're from Boise if dot, dot, dot. And then have like a listicle of like, or, or here's yeah. another thing I would do is I would, I would say the eight stereotypes of Boise and I would have an infographic that like might makes like, do you have like a Boise neighborhood? That's like the frat area or like the Boise area. That's like the hipster one. So, so I actually did this tactic. I had an, I had an iPhone app um, years ago, a roommate matching app. And we launched in Boston, Manhattan, Chicago, and four or five other places. And all I, I had never been to Boston. And the way that we launched it was we put the stereotypical roommates of Boston. And when we had us, if you Google, uh, Google my name and like info, you might find it, but we made these infographics and each, there was a cartoon of like the woman who was like the, in the hipster area and like typical roommate of the mission in Boston, uh, shops at blank, uh, while drinking a coffee from X, um, can be seen walking her pug dog, uh, that with a sweater she got from whatever. And, and the whole point of the thing was to two things. One, name as many local vendors from that neighborhood because I knew they would share. Right. And two, make fun of in a nice way that neighborhood because I knew everyone in that neighborhood would share. 
and with their friends like oh my god this is so us or whatever and i think if you did like an, like things like that that would actually probably grow faster than if you um did like the partnership side or anything like that yeah that that's interesting i'm i'm super curious how it's all going to go so i mean i started hiring a writer and um you know we'll get the initial subscribers and and the biggest thing right will be getting an editorial calendar and and getting everything going but then I'm curious how how it'll go. I think my goal is to get to 10,000 subscribers by the end of this year for a side hustle. So we'll see from there. Well, that's good, man. Congratulations. Thanks. Okay, um, where should people go to uh, to follow what you're up to? What do you what do you want to direct unit to? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, the Sampar. I, I am there a lot. Uh, don't email me. Don't text me. Don't. I won't reply. But if you talk to me on Twitter, I'll probably reply. Um, the hustle.co is our newsletter and then trends.co is the trends thing we talked about. Sounds good. Well, it's always good to hang out and, uh, I'll catch you later. Thank you. Thank you.